Hey, welcome to another Coaching You podcast with the coach Brendan Sir. I think you're really going to enjoy today. Uh, Will Voigt is the head coach of the Angolan national team, took over in November, quickly won a tournament. Um, best team in Africa. I think you're going to love the way he describes international basketball. This is really one of the first in-depth conversations we've had about international basketball. He was the head coach in the Olympics in 2016 of the Nigerian team. Um, Fascinating story. We get into all kinds of topics. I think you're going to find that this is a study about anyone that's taking a job. Where do you learn? Where do you grow? And I think you're going to enjoy this. So after this break, Let's enjoy Will Voigt. Fast Model Sports is the world's most versatile basketball coaching software to help power your preparation. Fast Model has developed the industry's best coaching software, including the number one play diagramming and playbook software, FastDraw. FastDraw bridges the gap between whiteboarding and the digital world with an incredibly easy-to-use interface that can be used on both your computer and your iPad, providing maximum portability for your own personal play and drill database. doesn't stop there. Along with FastDraw, they have other great programs such as FastScout, which I have used, which helps coaches create clean professional sky reports customized for your team. FastModel is trusted and used by every NBA team and WNBA team and 85% of Division I college teams and over 8,000 high school and youth teams from over 75 countries around the world. In addition to a great product, they also provide basketball coaching resources through their blog and play bank, which features over 5,000 free plays and drills for their online coaching community. For access... To these plays and more information, visit FastModelSports.com or follow them on Twitter at FastModel. Excited today with our guest, as I had mentioned earlier, Will Voigt, the coach of the Angolan national team. Will, that is a first intro that I've ever had for the coach of another national team. So congrats and welcome to being on our podcast. No, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I'll tell you what, there are so many questions, so many ways to go. We're going to almost do it in reverse. Normally, I'll say and talk about people's, uh, you know, history from, you know, their beginning and stuff. But we'll go go back there in a bit. So I, you know, I followed your career when you were with the Nigerian team, which I thought was absolutely astounding. And then, and then, you know, all of a sudden, uh, about a month or so before you had to play this November, and then, you know, qualifying tournament, uh, you get named, you know, to be the coach of the Angolan team. Give me a similarity of that in either college basketball or in pro basketball in the States of what that would be. I mean, you know, Angolan team is, and the Nigerian team, they're two of the best teams, but the Angolan team has always been one of the best teams in Africa. So, was that a big deal to jump from one of the African nations to the other? Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just to put it mildly. Yeah. Uh, you know, it was, it was an interesting development. Uh, we had, we had played Angola in, in 2015 for the African championships. Right. Uh, so we beat them in the championship game. Um, and as you alluded to, you know, Angola, they're sort of the Yankees of African basketball. Right. Uh, so they had won, 
uh, 11 of the previous 13 African championships uh, prior to that. So, you know, they're just this, this juggernaut. Um, and, uh, you know, at the time, I, I thought it was a great stepping stone for, for Nigeria, and I was really focused on that. Uh, but one of the things you run into really with almost all the African federations. Um, but it's, it's just a really highly politicized position. Mm. And, and what happened, uh, this past summer, uh, you know, we were getting ready to, to prepare for, uh, the, the African championships, uh, for this fall. And they still had not resolved the election for the federation. So those, those federation elections are on an Olympic cycle. Uh, so after we, you know, finished uh, playing in Rio, most federations would have quickly held an election, uh, you know, put in place whoever it was, or you know, if it was the same group, um, but determine that early and then moved forward. Yeah. Uh, and that was not the case with Nigeria. So. Um, two, two parties claim to have won. Uh, <laughs> I like that. You know, uh, sounds, yeah. Sounds like uh, Alabama or something, you know, but, <laughs> but go, I'm sorry, Alabama. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, FIBA had to get involved and it just, it, it, you know, it was making me a little nervous. Um, and we were getting closer and closer to our preparation dates and, and it still hadn't been resolved. Uh, and then kind of the, the final step of all of that, uh, you know, I went ahead and I had learned this from experience that, you know, I needed to do a lot of the heavy lifting with putting our preparation in place. Um, cause otherwise it, it wouldn't get done. So, uh, so I went ahead and made plans, uh, for the summer and, and actually it would have been amazing. Um, uh, coach Messina, uh, Ator Messina, yeah. who, you know, is now with the Spurs. Um, uh, had offered to to host us uh, in Italy in Sardinia, which is you know, for anybody that knows, yeah, this yeah. amazing island uh, you know, off 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 the southern coast. And uh, so we were going to be there, have training camp with Italy, play a game there against Italy, and then uh, play in a tournament uh, with Turkey and Finland. Um, so it would have been great. I mean, it would have been just an amazing experience for us. Uh, and, you know, we're getting closer and closer to when we're supposed to fly out and there's still no resolution to who, you know, who's the Federation president. Um, and so then kind of shockingly, uh, you know, FIBA stepped in and essentially what FIBA said was we're going to recognize uh, Musa Kida, who who would now be a new president. So he would be replacing wow. who I had who I had been working for. Uh, but they, FIBA said this is only on a temporary basis. So, you know, we still feel like it's not resolved, but obviously something needs to be put in place. Um, and as soon as that happened, uh, you know, for reasons I still don't fully understand, he decided he did not want to go to Italy. And I think, you know, I think it's, he saw it as part of the previous regime, um, but whatever it was, it, you know, at that stage, uh, we had committed and Italy was expecting us to be there and this was a televised game and tickets had been sold. I mean, this is oh a big deal. Gosh. Uh, so when that happened, um, it was just kind of a point of no return, uh, in terms of my relationship with, with them moving forward. 
so so i was not you know i i was not a part of this fall uh for the african championship so uh angola saw that and you know fortunately for me reached out and uh and yeah like you said i mean it was very last minute and we're kind of scrambling to put a staff together and for me to get familiar with with some of their newer players and learn as much Portuguese as I could in, in a short amount of time, uh, but that's how it all came together. Wow, that is more than I thought. Uh, now tell me this, and and this is the, the beauty of this is it's a coaching podcast. It's not a political one, and it's it's about coaches that coach white kids, black kids, uh, Latino kids. It, it's about kids. It's not about you know players are players. It has nothing to do with race. Uh, but, you know, having uh, done a lot of international basketball, whether it be in China, in Africa, or in Russia, is that, you know, you're dealing with all Africans. And so here you are, a little white kid from Vermont, so to speak. And how are you accepted over there? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, you know, there's no question that I, you know, when people look and say, wait, you know, wait, that's your coach. I mean, I, I, I get that all the time. Yeah. Uh, and, um, I mean, even at the Olympics, I felt like, oh, you yeah. know, some, sometimes people be like, wait a minute. Uh, but I think, you know, I, I think honestly, coaching always comes down to the same things. Um, you know, players, no matter who you are, need to trust that you're, you're competent uh, with what you do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that you have their best interests in mind. So, you know, I learned that, I learned that being in the NBA, especially, yeah. you know, here you have these amazing athletes. And as you know, many of them are, you know, have incredible basketball IQs and, you know, I learned from them probably more than anything I provide. Uh, but, you know, once you get through that initial stage where they're kind of feeling you out and they're, you know, they'll test you a little bit and, and, and make sure that, you know, you, you have good intentions for them and can help them improve and put them in situations to be successful, then I think it grows as any other relationship does. Um, and so it was similar for me. Uh, now I was really fortunate that, you know, arguably our best player on the Nigerian team, Ike Diagu, uh, I had coached in Bakersfield in the D league. Good. Um, so, you know, we had already formed that relationship. So I think probably, the skepticism that everybody else had, you know, behind the scenes, he was probably, you know, supporting me. And that was, that was really helpful. And then there was another player. So Alade Aminu, who's Al Farouk's uh, older brother. Yep. Uh, Alade had also played for me in the D league and, and had earned a call up uh, with the Miami heat when he was playing for me. So, you know, I think having those two guys and having relationships with those two guys prior um, was a huge part of it. And I know, I know specifically with Holiday that that then helped with Al Farouk. Um, you know, because obviously his brothers, they're gonna, you know, Al Farouk's gonna really trust what sure. Holiday has to say. Um, so, you know, a lot, a lot of that early transition, uh, you know, the credit goes to those two guys and smoothing it over. And then I think with Angola, because we had already had success with Nigeria, uh, it was it was a little bit easier. You know, I think at that stage, like I'd already coached an African nation. We had already won a championship. We beat them. So, you know, I came in with 
a little bit more credibility and, and probably a little bit more trust from the players right out of the gate, uh, which was, you know, helpful given the short amount of time we had. How about, you know, and, and you, you start to allude to it. So trust is a huge, huge issue in any level of coaching. Uh, one of my friends uh, says uh, trust is the ultimate form of human currency <laughs> and uh, yeah. for anything that we do. And uh, the other thing I find in coaching is your credibility. I don't care if you're dealing with high school kids, AAU kids, uh, kids from China, kids from Africa, or kids in the G- D or G League. And these young people, uh, they know if you know what the hell you're talking about. Is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and so they're all the time you're being evaluated by them. And I think that's the thing that a lot of coaches don't realize. If it's almost like being a teacher in school, you know, and you know, if you don't know your subject matter, the smartest kid in the class will figure it out. And uh but it's the same thing on our teams is that if you don't know what you're doing, they will sense it and then they say he can't help us. That's when you really lose players from a credibility standpoint. So you always have to be ready. You always have to be prepared. And you can't BS kids. Would you find that to be true anywhere you've coached? Absolutely. Um, you know, everywhere. And, uh, um, yeah, I mean, they'll, they'll, they'll pick up on it so quickly. And, you know, you know from your NBA experience, uh, I think they're especially um, – because at that stage, those guys have been around so much basketball – uh, and so many of them are, are just, you know, they're just brilliant basketball minds. Yep. And, uh, so yeah, I mean, you're being tested every day and, um, you know, some guys are a little bit more aggressive with how they do it than others. Um, but there's no question you have to, you have to earn their trust, uh, through that. But I think, you know, I think I'm a testament of that. You know, I mean, if you, if you look at me, you know, you'd be like scratching your head being like, wait a minute. Um, <laughs> But the fact that these guys allow me to coach them, uh, uh, you know, I think reflects on what you said. I mean, at the end of the day, that's what's most important to them. Like, they don't care what package it comes in. Right. As as long as you, you know, are competent and know your subject matter and can help them and, you know, put them in a position to succeed and they trust that you'll do that, then they're going to let you coach them. And just like you said, that's that's the recipe at every level, no question. Now, I'm a big advocate of uh, to really be successful at the NBA level. At, at you know, and again, I you know, I always say if it works at the NBA level, it works at every level beneath it. Um, I really believe in coaching any sport that you have to unconditionally love your players and care for them. Now, here is a guy from another country, and you have to go in there and show that you really care about them. How important was that for them to understand that you really did? Because I know you did. Yeah. Um, well, you know, with Nigeria, uh, it, it, was, it was a really special group. In, in some ways, maybe the most special team I've been a part of. Mm-hmm. Um, there was such a sense of brotherhood um, that, you know, it, I was more just kind of assimilating to, to like this love that was already there. Yeah. So, uh, you know, for me, 
Um, it was just kind of not messing it up, <laughs> you know, like these guys, they were so close knit um, and they shared such a fondness for each other. Uh, so it was easy. It was easy to, to just kind of blend in with that part of it. And, um, and again, you know, I, like I said, I had two relationships prior with players and those guys knew how much, you know, I cared about them and all the day I coached in my first year in the D league. So that was a relationship that had gone back, sure. you know, at that point, six years or five years, whatever it was. Uh, and, and we were still, you know, we were still in contact and close. So, uh, I think the guys could look at that and be like, well, you know, you know, he's still close with holiday and, you know, Ike is saying good things. And so I, I think they were willing to let me in. And that was really the biggest thing. I mean, because it would have been easy for them to, to just do their own thing, uh, and keep, and keep me on the sidelines for that. Um, but they didn't, you know, they, they embraced me and, and that was kind of what it felt. You know, I, I wasn't trying to come in and be like, well, this is, you know, this is what our culture is going to be. And this is how we're going to do things. And da, 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 da. I had to learn from them. You know, I had to learn about Nigerian culture. I sure. had to learn about where their love for each other came from, where that brotherhood came from. Um, and so, you know, through that process, I just grew to, to love them more and more. I mean, they really were just a great group of guys. So that is, that's one of the great lessons of coaching uh, that you learn from your players, which I'm a total advocate of. I've, I've often said that the bad boys, when we were fortunate enough to coach them, Chuck and I, we learned way more from those guys than they ever learned from us. And I'm working with one of the best of all time in Chuck Daly. And he was just constantly learning from them, asking them what their feelings were. And the respect that you get from them when they feel that their opinion is matters, you know, I think is huge. And and what you find out is, you know, and, and this is one of my points because I think this is so intriguing with you. Uh, when you were coaching and really leading uh, a group, there is no there there's no race card there's no you don't you don't judge people by what color they are you 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 work two ways in their hearts and in their mind is that fair yeah yeah and no, that's a a really great way of putting it you know and and that's what we look at i i've never looked i mean I, i'm thinking back now as i'm talking to you because you really stimulated my thinking I'm, I'm thinking back to the last nba team i coached the knicks uh we had at one point uh an entirely 14 black players. David Lee was my only white player. And I was the only white coach on the staff of five coaches. But I never saw a color. Never saw a color. And you know what? Because, you know, there's that bond with the people that you work with and, and play with. And, and, that, and that's what I think is so strong. If the rest of our world could think like we do in coaching and teaching as far as leading, I think it's a huge thing because we don't look at color we just look at helping people you know a friend of mine said to me recently you know, you know what's your definition of coaching oh, I, I said well I've always used helping people get better he said uh, you know he said try this one he said taking players where they can't take themselves and I said Ooh. yeah <laughs> mm -hmm. I love that and and that's what you've done and and I think you know uh, and you did it you didn't go in there Knowing your personality, you didn't go in there yelling and screaming and saying, hey, this is the way it is. Or if not, your ass is out of here, was it? Just the opposite, right? 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's funny. Um, when I, when I went to Nigeria, I never even like, now that you're talking about the color thing, like I, I and this will sound crazy, but it, it's absolutely true. I didn't go in there thinking about, well, I'm white and they're black. I went in there thinking I'm American and they're Nigerian. Mm -hmm. Like to me, that was the bridge that I had to cross. I agree so, with you. Yeah. You know, it was, it, it, and I, and I just never even thought about that uh, until you started saying these things now. And I'm sure for other people, yeah, like the immediate thing is like, well, you know, this is a white guy. Uh, but it really, for me, it was just about learning more about the Nigerian culture and what that meant. Um, and for me, I was foreign because I was from the U.S. You know, yeah. like that was that was what made me the outsider. Um, so and I guess that just speaks to what you're saying. You know, I think when we've been a part of of basketball as, as much as we've had, you know, you, you don't even think about any of the race part of it. Uh, yeah. So that's an interesting point. Yeah. So in now in now in Nigeria and now in Angola, uh, now in Angola, you know, is Portuguese is your uh, first language, I guess, primary language. Uh, what is what is the hardest thing that we have to worry about as far as you know, uh, you know, communication from that standpoint, uh, as far as you know. Is there a language barrier? And if there is, how do you communicate? Because I know when I was going over and doing clinics in China, huge problem, huge problem, you know, with the English language and stuff and, and teaching and coaching. But how about in Africa, in Nigeria and Angola for you? Yeah, well, you know, Nigeria is a former British colony. Yep. So, you know, English is the primary language. Right. Um, there, There are... You know, there are tribal dialects. There's actually over more than 200 local dialects. Uh, and then there's there's four primary uh, dialects. And sort of what I said, um, and, and, you know, as with most countries with, with lots of ethnicities blended together, you know, there's a history of, of animosity between them. Um, <laughs> yeah. So our first rule was, you know, hey, listen, we're doing this in English. So... Uh. You know, any time that somebody would want to break into their uh, local dialect, we we would try to squash that. And you know that that's sort of a part of a bigger philosophy that I have that I've applied everywhere. Um, I think it's really important that you all speak the same language, and by that I don't necessarily mean English, Spanish, French. I mean basketball language. That's great. So you know whatever whatever white or, or red or blue or ice or what, you know, whatever the words are, everybody has to understand what they mean. That's great. And, and then now you're, you know, over time, you're all speaking the same language in a game or in a timeout or in a heated situation. You know, if we, if we say one word, boom, everybody knows what we're talking about. Um, and so that process, you know, those words can be anything. And then you all learn what the meanings of those words are. Uh, so there's no question it's easier when everybody knows English. Um, but I had coached, you know, I coached in Norway for three years. I coached in China for two years. 
so I'd already faced the difficulties um, when when you aren't, you know, in, in English or whatever your primary language is. Uh, and what I found was that it actually makes you a better teacher because you have to be so efficient with how you do it. You know, if you're getting out there and you're being really wordy and takes you a long time to, to get to the point that you're trying to make, you, you know, you've lost them because they don't even understand three quarters of what you just said anyway. So, uh, you know, being really precise with the points you want to make and then doing most of your teaching through doing, I think is a great philosophy in general. You know, I think if you look at an American kid, they're going to they're going to gravitate more towards that type of teaching. You know, if you're up there and you're talking a long time and you haven't gotten them into something where they're, you know, they're getting a feel of it and trying to do it and you're correcting, they're probably already mentally, you know, halfway out the door on you anyway. Uh, so that, you know, that's kind of been my approach with it. So Portugal, I mean, sorry, uh, Angola with the Portuguese was, you know, was a new challenge for me, but it was the same steps. So, you know, we would introduce words and then kind of, you know, through doing all understand what the words meant. And, and what we did there was, you know, we used more Portuguese words. So I had to be the one learning, probably adapt. Yeah. Learning and adapting. But at the end of the day, it was the same process. Okay. This, you know, fraco, for example, fraco is Portuguese for weak. So, you know, every, everybody has like a week call in the NBA, right? right. So, so I just got to remember that Fraco means weak, but in terms of, okay, what is weak? We're, you know, we're all on the same page, having practiced it, walked through it, you know, all of those type of things. So, uh, you know, over time you build your, your own vocabulary and, and now you're able to go. You know, uh, you made me think there about teaching uh, the great Tony Robbins, uh, you know, is a huge believer in simplicity. And he says, I want to make sure I get this right. He says, complexity is the enemy of execution. And I think that is so such a true statement in basketball. I mean, he's talking about in life or in anything. But I, I just think the more complex we make it, I, I always used a statement, Will, that Every one of my players come at any level, whether it be college or pro, uh, academically uh, comes from a different, you know, wavelength. Basketball IQ is different. But my job is that every one of them has to get an A in my class, right? Uh, yeah. So, so I don't care. You know, I've, I've coached uh, Tom McMillan, who is a Rhodes Scholar, okay? Hey, you know. Then I had on the same team John Drew, who was barely a high school grad, you know, and boy, but they and and UB Brown said they all have to get an A in what we're teaching because UB was a high school teacher by background, and so I thought that was a great point for me to understand that we're teachers first. When you get the job at at an Angola or a Nigerian team. How, how do you put a team together? Because a lot of folks don't know, and you mentioned it earlier that there's a lot of Americans with that background, correct? What we well, what we perceive as Americans, you know, I mean, they're, they're playing in America, they're, you know, and stuff, but their heritage allows that a parent or they were born in that country. So how are they eligible to play and how do you go about finding them? Yeah, uh, well, Nigeria, um, definitely, uh, you know, there's yeah. a huge, huge Nigerian population in the U.S., 
Uh, I think, you know, if you look at any high major college program, you're bound to find at least one Nigerian on it. Mm. Um, and, and if you look in the NFL, you know, there wow, are a right. lot of them. Uh, so it was interesting because one of the things that I learned um, was that these kids who were, for the most part, first generation Americans with two Nigerian parents, uh, had very different kind of upbringing. So you had some who for all intents and purposes were Nigerian. You know, they grew up speaking the local dialect in the house, eating nothing but Nigerian food in the house, uh, you know, just being surrounded by the culture. Uh, and then you had a few where they were wanting to learn about it, you know? So, so kids that for whatever reason, uh, maybe the parents separated or or maybe the parents wanted to assimilate to U.S. culture, but didn't quite have the same level of exposure to it. And and we're trying to get in touch with that, you know, that heritage. Uh, so it was an interesting blend. And then, of course, we had, you know, players who were living and for, had been in Nigeria the whole time. But uh, it, it was it was an interesting blend um, of all of them. And. Like you said, trying to identify the guys, um, FIBA, FIBA passed a rule uh, that honestly probably affects Nigeria maybe more than any other country. Uh, but essentially, the rule states that if you were not born in the country uh, that you want to play for, then you must have received a passport um, before you turn 16 years old. Uh, and in the case of Nigeria, you know, I mean, you'd be shocked at the number of guys that potentially could have played. So for example, Giannis Antetokounmpo has two Nigerian parents. He has a Nigerian passport. So, you know, basically it's like a recruiting battle. So, you know, now he, he's playing for Greece, but he could have played for Nigeria, um, you know, had the Federation identified him earlier and, and he decided he wanted to do that. Uh, you know, Victor Oladipo, Jaleel Okafor. I mean, you know, the list goes on and on and on with, with kids that kind of fit into that category where they have Nigerian parents, they would be eligible to play for the national team, but because of the rule change, they, you know, they needed to have received their passport in time. And most of them didn't understand. And, you know, parents aren't thinking about, well, how do we, you know, how do we make our kid eligible athletically? And, you know, that's not something that's entering their mind. Um, So we did, we ran into that issue quite a bit where, you know, we would, we would find great players uh, with Nigerian heritage, um, but that had received their passports too late. So, uh, it took a while, uh, and we would get excited. You know, you'd you'd get excited about somebody, and then do the you know background, <laughs> and realize that it wasn't going to happen, and kind of have to move to to the next option. Um, but that was a big part of putting the the Nigerian roster together. Um, now, comparing that to Angola, so you know, Nigeria is 185 million people, with you know, arguably another 50 million people. Uh, worldwide so you know it's this huge population uh you know angola is much much smaller so uh 
uh, you know, we've been, and, and I searched, you know, having gone through that experience with Nigeria, that was sort of my first thought was, well, you know, who are, who are the kids who, you know, have an Angolan parent or parents and, uh, you know, maybe haven't gotten a passport yet. And, and the number was far fewer. Uh, and then because of the language, so Nigerians gravitate towards English speaking countries. So if you go to, you know, the UK, you go to the US, you're going to find a lot of Nigerians. So there just aren't that many Portuguese speaking countries. Uh, so, you know, outside of Portugal, uh, Brazil. very few, yeah, very few Angolans yeah. are leaving, you know, so they're not going to leave Angola for Brazil or leave Angola for Cape Verde or, you know, some of these right. other places. Um, so we really didn't come across that many, like really the only big name uh, uh, player with Angolan heritage is Clint Capella. Um, wow. Clint has an Angolan father. Uh, but in our case, you know, it was the same thing. He, he didn't receive his passport early enough and you are allowed one player, uh, that you can naturalize. And for us, uh, it just didn't make sense. Like our true need, and this is true for a lot of the African nations, our, our true need is at a guard position. Yeah, right. You know, and yeah. and as great as Clint is, and and man, what a season he's having right now. Sure. Um, for that one, you know, to use that one naturalized spot at a position where we we do have a few options, just didn't make sense. So you're like, you're like a general manager as well as a coach. <laughs> I mean, yeah. in reality, yeah. I mean, you know, you're putting a team together too. Which is great, yeah. You know, yeah. which is more like a head coach in college basketball is really like a you know a pro GM because he's all about player acquisition and stuff. So that that's fascinating to me. Hey, let's take a second to tell you about one of our partners, Doctor Dish. Doctor Dish basketball shooting machines are the most high tech and durable basketball shooting machines on the market today. Each shooting machine was designed specifically for high repetition training to allow players to improve through technology. Dr. Dish offers game-like training to give hundreds of shooting reps in just minutes and to provide powerful analytics to help players improve their game. Dr. Dish has also introduced Skill Builder, which is the first of its kind of basketball shooting industry that enables coaches and players to stay connected, design and upload training exercises that combine shooting, conditioning, and ball handling into one complete workout, and instantly receive feedback on their workout, allowing for real-time adjustments and improved performance. It is without question the most innovative basketball training machine on the market. It's been the official shooting machine of Coaching You for the last two years. To learn more about Dr. Dish, log on to Dr. Dish basketball.com or follow them on twitter at dr dish b ball talk about you know we know about nigeria we know about what you're now doing in angola but talk to me about two other situations you you briefly mentioned that you coached three years in norway what can you tell me about that experience that helped you down the road and also in china i want you to go there because that's a totally different world basketball wise you know uh, well, I'll start with Norway. No, yeah. Um, it, for me, it was, it was great. Uh, you know, now I, and for anybody that's been there, I mean, the country is amazing. Uh, you know, beautiful landscape, wonderful people. Um, you know, they found a bunch of oil reserves in the North Atlantic sea. So it's one of the <laughs> you know wealth, wealthiest countries 
uh, per capita in the world. And, you know, everybody is, is happy and living the good life. Um, but, uh, for me, it was tremendous because, uh, at the time, um, they, they had a television deal and, you know, so there was, there was solid money in the league. It's actually fallen off quite a bit since then, but it was a solid league, but not like, a spectacular league, which for where I was at from a coaching standpoint was perfect. You know, if I, if I had jumped into, you know, Euro cup level or Euro league level, I mean, I would have been fired. I, you know, I'll be the first in a minute um, because I really didn't know what I was getting myself into. Uh, so it, I mean, this came out of nowhere, uh, you know, really funny story. So I, you know, at the time I was, uh, working for Mike Dunlap at Metro State, um, Coach Dunlap had had coached in Australia uh, professionally for I think three or four years. So you know he had familiarity with international basketball and and sort of the value that coaching overseas can can bring to you know to you as a coach and a person. Um, but I had never thought about it. You know I'd never played overseas. Like literally there was never a day spent about, you know, how, how could I get a job overseas? What would it be like? I mean, I never had entered my thought process and what had happened, um, Marty Clark, I don't know if you remember Marty Clark. Yeah. Yeah, Marty played at Duke. Uh, Marty was set to take this job. And I I guess apparently last minute, his uh, wife got cold feet. And literally and they, Norway. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> uh, and, and so they decided to back out and the agent uh, who represented him, uh, a guy named Ralph Flores, who's actually not an agent anymore, but uh, uh, Ralph's in Chicago. And he literally gets off the phone with Marty and he's just like, Oh my goodness. You know, what am I going to do? This team is going to kill me. And he turns to the guy he's sitting in a gym. He turns to the guy sitting next to him and is like, hey, this might sound crazy, but would you know anybody that might be interested in taking this job really last minute? Uh, and the guy he t- turned to was my high school basketball coach, a guy named Steve Pratt. And so my coach says, well, actually, I might. And, and he gives – him my name and and phone number and then never tells me that he did it oh geez. so so i literally get this random phone call from a guy i've never met talking about you know hey you want to go coach in norway so I, you know i'm almost thinking like it's a prank yeah uh and then you know he offered or i mean i guess the club must have offered <laughs> it but they were willing to fly me out and spend a week training their players, uh, a sort of, you know, a, a tryout for me. Right. Um, smart, smart. Yeah. Yeah. And so I went to coach Dunlap after this crazy phone conversation and explained to him what had happened. And, and basically coach's stance on it was, well, uh, you know, why don't you just go out there and treat it like a vacation and just see, <laughs> you know, just see what they, you know, what it's all about. So, you know, with his blessing to do that, that's what I did. And, you know, I hopped on a plane and literally was still not even thinking that, that I would ever end up taking a job. You know, it was, it was like, oh, you know, paid, paid vacation and see a new place in the world. 
and then I went out there and was just really surprised about the level, uh, the commitment of the players, um, the country itself. I mean, just everything was a yeah. really positive experience and was fortunate enough that they, you know, they thought I did a decent enough job uh, with, with the tryout phase to, to offer me a contract. Um, yeah. So, you know, so I came back to Metro and and spoke with coach Dunlap and he encouraged me to do it. And, uh, and it was an amazing experience. So I I went over there, um, you know, never been a head coach, uh, knew really very little about international basketball. Um, and just basically got lucky. You know, we, we won enough that, I, I kept my job each year and, and, you know, learned, learned a little bit more about the game. Um, you know, got great exposure to international basketball, uh, started to get involved with their national team as an assistant. So was able to, you know, play against these great European national teams and learn from them. And it just, it really allowed me to see basketball through an entirely different lens. And, um, you know, it's an experience that, uh, I think it's had a lasting um, imprint on me as a as a person and a coach for sure. When you uh, decided to go to China, uh, did you know you were going to one of the most scenic spots in the world <laughs> in, 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 our, in, in this fabulous city? Uh, of which you have to tell our listeners that uh, there's like 40 cities with over 10 million people in China. You know, I mean, like we think New York and L.A. are big. There's 40 of those out there, you know. And and certainly the city that you were in with, uh, how should we describe your owner? Uh, you know, maybe like the... Mr. Dolan of the Knicks of the, uh, uh, possibly I can say that he gave me enough money, uh, that, you know, kind of like that. But, uh, what was it like being in China compared to um, Norway? My God, what a difference. Yeah. Well, no, you've, you've nailed it there. Um, <laughs> well, you know, you talk about the owner of one of the, one of the best names, I think, in, in all of basketball lore, Boss Wong was <laughs> what they called him. That's right. Uh, yeah, Boss Wong. Um, honestly, uh, you know, it was it was such a last minute deal. Um, uh, and, and a similar story with with Nigeria. I, I had coached uh, one of their import players, so Vaughn Wafer uh, was one of their imports. And as you know, you know they pay these guys a lot of money. Yeah. Um, so these guys have, you know, a fair amount of influence. Uh, and the team had started, they, they had already started their season my first year. So they were one and two and they lost at home by, I think, like 40 points. Uh, and as you know, that is, that is time for, you know, that's the panic that, button time that, in China. Yeah, that guy's on the plane. He's, on, <laughs> he's out of there. Yeah. So uh, basically, you know, Vaughn came in and, like we, you know, we need help uh, coaching wise and uh, had known me from the D league and, and then uh, you know, another small world connection, um, Tony Ranzoni, who I'm sure you oh, know. Yeah. Love, uh, love Tony. Yeah. So Mr. International himself, to- Tony was d- already doing some sort of like consulting thing <laughs> with them. You, you know, He's consulting everywhere. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You're never quite sure. Uh, but um but so Tony and I, you know, have had a friendship for, for a long time. And, uh, 
so it was just kind of a perfect storm, you know, had to have Vaughn throw my name out there. And then, you know, Tony's their consultant. So they bounce the name off of him and, you know, he can vouch for me. And so it really all came together. It, it was insane. It, you know, I got a phone call uh, and I'd say within 48 hours I was on a plane. Uh, so I really, to be honest, didn't fully know what I was getting myself into, uh, until I got there. Um, and yeah, I mean, you talk about, you know, the first thing you you see when you're flying in is, is what you think is some like thunderstorm of gray clouds, which is really just the the level of pollution (laughs) and smog that, that engulfs that city. Um, because it's like, it would be, I don't mean to just light our friends in West Virginia, but it's a coal mining region of China, I believe, right? Something like that. Yeah. 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 No, that's exactly right. Yeah. It's uh, it's a coal mining region with with no um, with no EPA there. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely yeah. not. Uh, and you know, it now it is you know one interesting aspect of the city. So we're we're talking about Taiwan. Um, uh, so this is sort of the central part of the country, which is mm-hmm. where you know where the init- initial dynasties formed. So the oldest heritage of China is all in that region. Oh wow! So yeah, so like the the you know terracotta fighters, you know, and Xi'an is like a real popular tourist spot. That's only about two two and a half hour drive um, from our city. But so you know the good and the bad. The bad, nobody speaks English there because it's still just this bubble of old China. Yeah. Um, you know, you're far away from Shanghai and Beijing and you far, know, some of the, in- far, yeah. far away. <laughs> yeah. So some of the international cities that do get a little bit of Western influence like that is not happening there. Um, and yeah, you just have these gray smoggy, you know, pollution filled days that can, can get a little depressing at times <laughs> for sure. <laughs> we it, so you've had this incredible journey now uh, that you when you started uh, wanted to be a coach and this is now why I said we're going to go in reverse. So when you when you said you know coming out of school, hey, I want to coach and I'm going to go be an intern for the Clippers and the Spurs and stuff like that. And you say I'm going to go on this neat little journey and see where it takes me. Never in a million years did you think it was going to end up where it did. Have you? Oh, absolutely. Uh, and I think that's a great lesson learned. Um, you, you know, sometimes young, young aspiring coaches will come up to me and, and kind of, you know, ask for advice and that type of thing. And, you know, that's, that's one of the first things I tell them is, you know, if you, if you think that you're going to sit down and map out this course of how you get to, you know, whatever it is that, that you determined to be your final destination, uh, you're, you're going to be disappointed. Uh, and I think, you know, honestly, I think that's a mistake a lot of coaches make, you know, sometimes, and believe me, I, you know, especially the younger version of myself, uh, you know, I'm as guilty as anyone, but sometimes we get way too concerned with how do we get to here instead of really taking care of where we're at. And, you know, these jobs and, you know, coach, these jobs are a blessing at at any level, you know, Mm -hmm. you, you, any job, you know, you talk about a good high school job and I bet you that that AD got a hundred people applying for it. Uh, so if you're fortunate enough to get one, um, you gotta love it. 
and you got to put everything you got into it and, and be happy with that. Uh, and then it's funny how things will play out from that. So, you know, I think if you take a job because you think that job is going to lead to the next job and it's just it's not a good way to go through. And, and, and you're going to be unhappy all the time because you're, you know, you're constantly wanting to be somewhere else. Um, so, yeah, that that's a huge lesson learned for me. And I've been incredibly fortunate uh, to have worked for some amazing coaches and people who are willing to to, you know, take me under their wing and help me and teach me. Um, and I, you know, I try to do the same, uh, and pay it forward as much as I can, but that's what I've learned. Uh, you know, everywhere I've gotten is the product of, of somebody else. Um, you know, I was just along for the ride and, uh, I think you got to enjoy that ride and enjoy working with, with kids and enjoy helping kids. Um, and let the rest just kind of take care of itself. Well, you're a very, uh, very humble guy and a very smart guy and uh, I really appreciate you and uh, and sharing and stuff like that and uh, it's going to be fun and now that all of our listeners all 100,000 of them that are going to listen to this podcast around the world can follow Becoming Golan fans as I will be too and uh, Will thanks so much for sharing this was fabulous and uh, really really appreciate it and hopefully uh, you know you're going to have a terrific uh, stay uh, with the Angolan team, and I know you're back in the States for the holidays now, but uh, anytime you're back, please give us a call. We'd love to have you on, and also uh, love to have you as our guest out at Coaching You in July. So thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks, Coach. I appreciate you having me. Really enjoyed uh, Will, and thank him for being our guest. Uh, I think you're going to see that this is one of the really bright young coaches uh, that we have in basketball with tremendous amount of experience. For those that have international basketball, for the, our listeners around the world, FIBA is a great game, great rules, and uh, you know, coaching you is about world basketball, not just U.S. basketball. And I think you're going to see, hopefully, uh, Will's schedule is going to allow that possibly he'll be attending uh, and even speaking at coaching you come July if his schedule allows it. I want you to learn about FIBA basketball because that is where rules are going to go to. But it was a great, great visit, and we really thank Will for being with us. Till next week, this is the coach, Brendan Sarah.